0: Thank you so much, uh, it is an incredible uh, honor for me to be here, I still can't really believe I'm here. <laughs> so uh, thank you uh, Mark, thanks Dan Strange too who's who's uh, been part of the maestro of uh, making this happen. It's um, such a treat, uh, Deanna and I are both uh, Canadian by birth, we just recently became US citizens so don't hold that against us, but uh, um, we have not given up our Canadian passport and. We say, long live the Commonwealth. So it's, it's quite a treat uh, for us to be here and to be engaged with you. I, I think I've already uh, got a feel for uh, who's in the room tonight, and I'm looking forward to uh, the conversation. The two cities that I want to talk to you about this evening are not those chronicled by Dickens, as you might have guessed, but those that are mapped by St. Augustine in the 5th century. The earthly city and the heavenly city the city of man and the city of God. What I want to do tonight is suggest that Augustine offers us a kind of toolkit for thinking through our political vocations, a framework that is at once perennial, but I also think incredibly timely. Uh, um, But before I unpack that, I'd like to give you a feel for Augustine's own counsel to Christians involved in government. We have an incredible, so for those of you who might not be familiar, so St. Augustine is a North African doctor of the church who lives in the late 300s and early 400s. And we have a voluminous set of Augustine's letters and correspondence. And many of those letters, or a good chunk of those letters, are Augustine writing to Christians in government. In fact, you could say that, in a a sense, what we have is an ancient North African version of Christians in Parliament in the letters of St. Augustine. And I'd like to just highlight an example of what that council looks like. In his ongoing correspondence with Boniface, Boniface was a Roman general and African governor who served in political office during a time of tumult and upheaval. It seems like that's a common (laughs) refrain for people who serve in government. Um, And throughout this intimate correspondence, Augustine, well, first of all, Augustine shows concern for Boniface's soul. He understands the unique temptations and trials that go with serving in public office. And so he begins, as he always does, with love. He says to Boniface, this then I can say briefly, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole soul and your whole strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But then he says, this is the same love that is at work in you, Boniface. He points out, by this love, all good believers make daily progress, desiring not to come to a kingdom of mortal beings, but to the kingdom of heaven. So Augustine reminds Boniface, this powerful political official, that actually his allegiance is to a kingdom beyond the empire that he is currently serving. But what's also interesting is Augustine is not afraid to admonish Boniface at times. And when later in his life, and I wonder if some of you might identify with this, there was an episode in Boniface's life where he basically just wants to chuck it all and retreat to what he calls holy leisure because the work is killing him and that he just can't win. He can't do anything right. It doesn't look like he's being effective. And so he wants to throw it all in and he wants to go join some monastic community and enjoy holy leisure. What's interesting is that St. Augustine, who did found monastic communities, will not let Boniface off the hook. And he writes a very forthright letter in which he says to Boniface, you have a calling. He challenges him. Man your station, he exhorts him. God and his church need you to play the political role you've been called to. Not even the difficulty and corruption of the political environment is sufficient, in fact, Augustine says, to excuse Boniface from that call. You don't have an excuse. We need you there. In fact, he writes the Boniface, and he says this. If the Roman Empire has given you good things, albeit earthly and transitory ones, because it is earthly, not heavenly, and cannot give what it has in its control, if then it has conferred good things upon you, do not repay evil with evil. There's Augustine is, a, in many ways, a trenchant critic of the empire, and yet he also... uh, uh, um, exhorts this this Christian official, we need you serving in this role. You owe something to the earthly city, Augustine reminds him, even if your ultimate hope is in a city to come. But I think I want to end this this little foray with Boniface with what I think it might be his most prescient, prescient word for us today. Augustine writes to Boniface, And it's a theme that I think could organize our reflections tonight. When Boniface is frustrated and actually tempted to just impose his will as if it were up to him to make the kingdom come, Augustine cautions him and says this, we ought not to want to live ahead of time with only the saints and the righteous. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but have you ever wished how long, oh, Lord? (laughs) Can't we just live among the saints and the righteous? But Augustine's counsel to Boniface is, it's precisely when you are feeling impatient. It's precisely when you feel like you want to speed things up and get to that point. We ought not to want to live ahead of time. If tonight I can offer something of a map for Christian political involvement, think of it as a 3D map. It's one that will locate where we are in relation to these two cities, but it is equally important to orient when we are. So where and when. Christian political wisdom is a biblical orientation to place and time. And Christian involvement goes wrong precisely when we try to live ahead of time. Not living ahead of time is the motto of an unapologetic Christian realism, which is what I really want to commend to you this evening. So let me, let me frame it with these questions. When are we and where are we? Where are we and when are we? And uh, um, I want to suggest that Augustine offers us something of a political compass. I, I will not be coming here with uh, recommendations for Brexit negotiations. I, I have no policy recommendations whatsoever. What I want to commend to you is this, I'm gonna call it an Augustinian toolkit. And in that Augustinian toolkit is a compass. But it's a really, it's like a, some sort of Doctor Who-ish sort of compass because it not only tells you where you are, it tells you when you are. I'm talking about a posture for Christians engaged in public life, not just a set of strategies, if that, if that difference uh, makes sense. Now, there are two, so, so here's what happens. If you invite a philosopher, we're gonna, we're gonna do a little bit of conceptual thinking for a moment. And so I want to just put our thinking caps on for a, a, a few minutes, and I wanna put on the table what I think are two key concepts that St. Augustine bequeaths to the Christian tradition of thinking about politics, that ultimately reflect deep biblical themes, okay? The first theme is this. If you ask Augustine what time is it, his answer is that this is the seculum. This is the seculum. Now, you hear in the seculum, of course, secular, which is a word that we are familiar with. But what's interesting is that for Augustine, the seculum is a time. It's an era. It's a season. what does it mean to say that we live in the seculum? Well, for Augustine, what that means is we inhabit a very, very significantly bracketed era of time between the cross and kingdom come. Now, I know in a way this is going to sound very, very obvious. On the other hand, if you really take it seriously, it makes a difference for what you think politics can and ought to do in the meantime of the secular. So when we locate ourselves in the seculum, we realize that we live between cross and kingdom come. Time is not flat. So to locate ourselves in the seculum is also to remember that we live after the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I I wish there's so much I would love to talk to you about tonight, but there's so much at stake in the ascension of Jesus for how we think about politics. And I hope somebody should ask that question afterwards because I would love to talk about it. So we, where, when are we? Well, we live now after this world historical uh, 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 um, event in which God in Christ enters human history, gives himself on the cross, triumphs over death, and is ascended into heaven and is now seated on a throne. That has to make some difference politically. But, now remember, we are also this side of kingdom come. That's what it means to live in the seculum. So what, what would be an implication of that? Well, for example, when you realize that we live now in this seculum, it actually means that you expect pluralism. You expect pluralism because you know the kingdom's not here yet. You, expe- you realize that we still live, we live in an order in which Christ has made a dent on on the cosmos, and there is a foretaste of the coming kingdom, but we also know that it's not yet here. And so the reality of the brokenness of the world is still with us. The reality of a pluralism and deep difference in the world is still with us. When you know that you live in the season of the seculum, you won't be shocked or scandalized by deep disagreement. You kind of half expect it, and you bear witness to it. Does that make sense? So uh, um, this leads to now Augustine's second key distinction. In this era of the seculum, we live in what he called, the the Latin term is the permixtum. you might just say the messiness of two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city, or the city of man and the city of God. Now, what's, and I will try not to geek out too much in spending time on this, but I think, by the way, most of us are probably familiar with that distinction. We've heard that distinction, the city of man, the city of God. I think most of us actually don't understand the nuances of what Augustine meant by that. And we imagine that the difference between the earthly city and the heavenly city is something like the difference between earth and heaven. It's not. (laughs) The distinction between the two cities for Augustine is not two levels of reality, it's not two different jurisdictions that God has carved out. The difference between the two cities, the earthly city and the heavenly city for St. Augustine, is two loves. What explains the difference between these two cities is two ultimate orientations to what we think the good is. It's two different modes of desire and longing for what we think the fullness of human life looks like the distinction is two loves and so the beginning of the distinction and now i half wish i had a chalkboard here to sketch this out but the beginning of the distinction is not creation the beginning of the distinction between the two cities is the fall so the earthly city and the heavenly city are actually two rival configurations of what our social communal life could look like They are two very, very different versions of what we think we are made for and what humanity is organized and longing for. So what that means is politics, I hope we'll get to talk about this, but politics is not just something that belongs to the earthly city. Politics is the creaturely vocation, of forging a life in common that can either have the flavor of earthly city orientations. Augustine said the dominant love of the earthly city was the libido dominandi, the lust of power, of domination, of winning. Whereas the dominant love of the city of God is love for God and sacrifice for the sake of the other. Both of those are political. Both of those come with a vision of what human, social, cultural, shared, common life should look like. So don't. One, one caution I just want to plant is don't imagine that politics is owned by the earthly city. The earthly city embodies one form of politics, but part of what we are called to is to actually show the city of man how politics could be otherwise to bring a heavenly city kind of configuration and vision for what our social communal life looks like. The heavenly city is not just some spiritual ethereal reality, the heavenly city is its own polis, its own embodiment of actually what creation is longing to be and what human communal life is longing to be. So in this season of the secular. We are all thrown together, as it were, in the shared territory of a contested creation. And we are all forging a life in common that we call politics. (laughs) Uh, And now the question is, is our political labor indexed to kingdom come or to the kingdom of the self? There are two very different ways of imagining our callings in political life. So what difference might this make? And, and I, apologize. I hope I'm not being too abstract in, in this. But this, uh, um, I want to suggest that here are three differences it makes for how we inhabit time. And then I want to talk about some difference for how it, you think about place. So first of all, so what difference does it make if I understand when I am and where I am in relationship to the seculum and the city of God what difference would that make for how I labor politically now? The first is this. Christians are animated by an eschatology. Now what I mean, is, um, this sounded a lot better when I was preparing it, okay? So an eschatology it just is a, just a slight theological jargonish term to say at the heart of the biblical understanding of Christian faith is the sense that on the one hand, the kingdom is already here, has broken in, in Christ, but we also know that the kingdom is not yet. Does that make sense? So you cannot have a biblical Christianity that actually, that that fails to recognize this fundamental, futural orientation to a kingdom that is coming, but also is characterized by the realization that it's not yet here in its fullness. I think, uh, that is so crucial to a biblical imagination that fuels a faithful politics, and I would say most versions of Christian politics that go off the rails usually forget that point in some significant way. I come from the United States, so we can talk about all the kinds of ways that this can go wrong, if you like. Now, what, that, what, what would be the difference? What, what, what significance would that have? For example, what that means is if you are animated by a biblical eschatological orientation, you will refuse every utopianism. You will refuse all idealisms. And you will refuse the utopianisms of both left and right, by the way. There are both left and right versions of idealist utopianisms. What's wrong with utopianisms? They are trying to live ahead of time. Remember Augustine's counsel, do not try to live ahead of time. Our utopianisms always try to live ahead of time. In contrast, when you are animated by this biblical sense of expectation, of longing for a coming kingdom, and being indexed towards it, to be perfectly honest, one of the fallouts of that in terms of our posture is it really tempers your expectations of what politics can accomplish. Now, that is not meant to be a discouragement or a disappointment. It's actually meant to give us a realistic frame for what to expect from politics, precisely so we don't feel like we're failing when we aren't making the kingdom arrive. Fair? So that should engender what uh, um, others have called a Christian realism. Reinhold Niebuhr in in the United States in the 20th century was a a great articulator of this, and I think our, our... Current climate would do well to return to reading a Reinhold Niebuhr, because what he means by a Christian realism is simply the sense of tempered expectations about what the political can accomplish, um, and, and it might even mean recovering the lost art of faithful compromise. Secondly, and and um, yeah, yeah, it means that Christians in government need to be characterized by a remarkable facility for discernment about the contingent historical effects of God's providence on the political institutions that we inhabit. Let, let, me, let me try to make this point. Uh, um, Oliver O'Donovan, who I hope is a, is a patron saint of all of you. Uh, um, uh, Oliver O'Donovan, in, in his remarkable and difficult book, Desire of the Nations, talks about uh, um, what he calls the crater marks of the gospel on the political institutions of the West. It's, it's, he, he says, like a planet that has been pockmarked by asteroids that have hit it, the political institutions of the West bear the crater marks of the gospel. Because in fact, so many of the polities and policies and practices of democracies and constitutional democracies and constitutional monarchies—I'll give you that—really uh, um, couldn't have been imagined without the fallout and ripple effect of the gospel making a dent on the political imagination of the West. So the reason why I think, if you if you orient yourself towards time and realize when we are, what you realize is that in fact so many of the political and imp- uh, um Institutions and practices of the world that we inhabit are legacies of gospel impact on the institutions that people who don't believe the gospel nonetheless take for granted and value. And and there's a much, much longer story to be told about this, but there is actually a story to be told about how the very institutions of constitutional democracy, the liberty and dignity of the individual, even the liberties and realities that characterize market economies, which, which have grappled with poverty in ways that we couldn't have before, all of those have a genealogy that traces back, not to just some vague natural law, but to the particular claims of the gospel on what it means to be human. And so, one of the roles I think that we have to play here's the third theme public theology as amnesia therapy. I think one of the callings uh, um, that, and this is Mark and I were talking about this this afternoon, I do wonder if there is a unique opportunity for a ripple effect in the public imagination for those of you who are placed where you are when you have opportunity to engage in this exercise of what I'm calling amnesia therapy, where we have a public role to play, simply by re-narrating to modern liberal societies their religious and theological inheritance, of which they are ignorant, Uh, through no no fault of their own, by the way. I I do think that we are reaching a point in in Western democracies where there might be a lot more openness to this coming than we might realize because I think we're also discovering that the virtues and character that are necessary for constitutional and liberal democracies to work, the, the character and virtue that's needed of the citizens who inhabit those societies are not being produced by the institutions of secular liberal democracy. And so there's, there's, but it's very important. This can't be an I told you so moment. It has to be a moment of offering and gift to say, here's why Christianity is not a threat to the public. In fact, we, we want to suggest that in many ways, this is one of the key incubators of the kinds of citizens that are their democracies need. Not to instrumentalize the gospel, but to realize that that's part of a different story to be told. Uh, Earlier this morning, Barry Hall uh, gave us a a marvelous historical tour of Parliament. And uh, one of the themes he pointed out is that when the queen (coughs) enters the Black Rod's Gate, am I getting that right? Uh, One of the first things that she encounters when she steps out of the carriage are allegorical representations of justice, but also mercy. The notion that mercy has political import is an unthinkable idea until the gospel makes a dent on the West. It's also interesting that once she's in the, is it called the roving room here in the house, not far from here in the House of Lords? Again, justice and mercy are faced there as invitations of what the crown answers to. That is part of a very, very different story about the genealogy and DNA of what got us to the society that we are in right now. And I think it's, it's crucial that we not miss an opportunity to re-narrate that story to our neighbors. What difference does this make for how we think about place? Where we are? Now, um, so here I want to say, I think it's crucial that those who are Christians in public office realize that it's, it's important that we cultivate what I'm gonna call an ecclesial center of gravity. Let me try to explain. What, what I mean is exactly what Augustine was counseling Boniface, which is to say this, you are absolutely called to serve the wider common good even here amidst the earthly city, but you will do that best and and, uh, um, most imaginatively and most sacrificially when you remember that your citizenship, your fundamental and primary citizenship is in the city of God. So when I say cultivating this ecclesial center of gravity, what I mean is actually taking seriously that our formation in the body of Christ is its own kind of professional development for the public office roles that we are called to play. That these are not two compartments of my life, that in many ways, by giving myself over to the formative practices of the body of Christ, I am being, uh, um, uh, if you will, enculturated to the city of God, precisely so that I can then be sent into the earthly city, bearing witness to how it could be otherwise. There is a sense in which we fuel Our public and political imaginations with the biblical story which then funds our public work in our political roles so so think of worship is the civics of the city of God and insofar as we give ourselves over to those practices we are incubating an imagination so that when we are then sent to collaborate and work amidst the earthly city we come with this kingdom indexed vision because it's seeped into us through the civics of the body of Christ. It's, it's not just a question of where we are, but where we center ourselves. It's interesting, this is a free footnote, but when Augustine wrote this ginormous book called The City of God, it was, it was as the Roman Empire was, was being invaded by the barbarian horde and was falling, and, and all of the pagans were blaming the fall of Rome on the Christians. See, this is what happens. We let the Christians in, or you know, Christianity gets this this status, and not now the empire is falling. So Augustine partly writes an apologetic defense against those pagan charges, but I think it is actually equally important to realize that he was also writing to those Christians who had so mistakenly identified the Roman Empire with the kingdom of God that when the Roman Empire starts to crumble, they reach this deep existential crisis and they think the kingdom of God is crumbling. To which Augustine says, those were always two different things. <laughs> there's, there's mixture and overlap and there's a, there's, a, there's a complicated history, but those were always two different things. We need to remember where the center of our citizenship is. But then from there, when we are formed, when our imaginations for public life are now being formed in the gospel, what that means is we bring now a distinctly gospel-shaped imagination to our public life, and we offer it in all of its thickness and even its scandal as an offering for the common good. One of the things that has really interested me, Mark mentioned uh, uh, the book Awaiting the King. And and one of the things that I've been working on, and I admit this is more in a North American context, but I would love to hear how this lands uh, for, I was almost said y'all, how it, this lands for all of you uh, uh, in the United Kingdom. But part of the dynamic that interests me is what I would call assimilation. The, the, the ways and extent to which Christians just became assimilated to the dominant culture. And I think that happens for a couple of reasons. The first is we became just assimilated to the dominant cultural motifs because we missed the liturgical nature of political life. We miss the fact, politics isn't just something that you do, it does something to you. It has a formative dynamic about it. And the public rituals and litanies of our societies are always loaded with sometimes rival stories of what the good is, or rival versions of human flourishing. And if we miss the liturgical nature of those public litanies, we might miss the extent to which they are co-opting our imaginations and affections. So part of our assimilation can be explained because we didn't recognize the liturgical nature of politics. But I think the, the flip side is, we also didn't recognize the political nature of the church. Now when I say political there, I don't mean partisan nature. What I mean, though, is that the body of Christ is an outpost of the kingdom of God. And it comes loaded with a thick biblical vision of what human flourishing looks like. And we, under, we, we compartmentalized our lives and we didn't realize that to be a citizen of the city of God is to now be inculcated into a vision of what God longs for for the entirety of creation. It might be counterintuitive, but um, part of my argument is that the renewal of Christian political witness actually depends on the renewal of the church. And that the formation of citizens as well, but politicians and civil servants who can contribute to the renewal and redemption of our public life depends on the renewal of the church. And reframing and reforming our worship so that congregations now are biblically saturated, Christ-haunted imagination stations from which we are sent to love our neighbors and steward creation and build institutions that guard the vulnerable. We need our loves reformed and reordered by the civics of the city of God, so that we might know then how to prudentially forge a common life in the meantime of our waiting as we live alongside citizens of the earthly city. What? put it this way, when we learn to love what Christ the King loves, but we also know how to await his coming, we will be better equipped for the messy work of faithful compromise that characterizes public life in the secular. That's Christian realism. So I I know this will sound crazy, but what I'm actually saying is, we don't need less Christian politics, we need more. But we don't need any more, this is, I'm speaking to my American friends now for the most part, I think. But what we don't need is all kinds of earthly city politics with Christian veneer. Do you feel the difference between those two things? We, We could talk about it. So, what does this mean for us? We are formed to be sent. The outworking of our mission is always local. So even if we cultivate our sort of prime citizenship in the city of God, the outworking of our being sent and called always meets up with human finitude. And therefore, our mission is always local in some sense. It's either a nation, a state, a municipality, a neighborhood. I think we embrace that as an incarnational truth. And to realize that we, we it's, remember, we ought not to live ahead of time. Our political calling is crystallized in love of neighbor. What is, it, what is the calling of Christian politics? It is still, ultimately, love of neighbor. Politics is the art of the possible, we know that, but it is an art undertaken for the sake of the common good. It's precisely because we are called to love our neighbors that this translates into a Christian obligation to invest in political institutions. So, so what, what I so just want to encourage and praise you and thank you for is answering the call to invest in institutions that frustrate you and madden you. Because those, those institutions are actually still the most significant way to care for the vulnerable among us. And they are still an incredible embodiment of communal love of neighbor. Uh, Let's not lose sight of how significant that is. So what does a Christian political life look like? It looks like building, sustaining, and reforming institutions as the best way to care for vulnerable neighbors. Let me close by reminding us what time it is. This evening we are poised in a very politically charged moment. But I am not talking about Brexit. I'm talking about the liturgical calendar. We are between Christ the King Sunday and the beginning of Advent. To me, it is the most potent window politically for a Christian imagination. In the feast of Christ the King, we are reminded that the crucified God ascended to a throne bearing His scars. Fact, again, I have to say I'm still pretty geeked out on this tour we did this morning, and you know the robing room in the House of Lords is that what it's called, the robing room? When the Queen sits on her throne in there, she faces a massive painting, and above her is Christ seated on His throne with His hands raised and scars on His palms. That is a political liturgy. It is the rehearsal of Christ the king's story. If Christ is king, then all earthly rulers have in a sense already been deposed. (laughs) We are mere stewards in the meantime. But that stewardship is crucial. Not even kings or queens can make an ultimate claim on me anymore. When King Jesus knows the number of hairs on your head, you can't be reduced to a cog in some collectivist machine. This is what O'Donovan calls the desacralization of politics by the gospel. But, so that's Christ the King Sunday. It was two days ago. No, yesterday. i jet-lagged. Next week, Advent. Advent is how we learn to wait. Not in passive quietism, not in Pelagian activism, but in hopeful trust. The kingdom is something we await. It's not something we create. And so as long as we still pray, thy kingdom come, we know it hasn't arrived yet. The practice of Advent patience, pushes back on the Christian temptation to live ahead of time. Advent patience refuses both right-wing theonomies that would forget this waiting, but it equally pushes back on the sort of practical post-millennialisms that characterize utopianisms of the left that would reduce justice to a social amelioration project that depends on us. Both of these are failures to live into the realities of Christ the King and the waiting of Advent not to mention the cross-shaped life of a people who image Christ. The rhythms of the church's life together and us. I hope you'll see. This is, this is my plea for the liturgical calendar as political professional development. Because what's happening now is to live into this, your imagination is inscripted that is shaped by the story of God and Christ reconciling all things to himself. Christian political participation should be bold, but circumspect, tempered, but hopeful. It should be cross-shaped and kingdom bent. May your work, friends, animated be animated by the cadences of two hopeful declarations. Lift up your hearts and be not afraid. Thanks very much.